What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're not quite sure where to get that question answered, well, we can help you out with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 and, of course, you can always send us an email. Uh, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, and I'm uh, Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. We're going to lead off with an email here from Don in Rochester, Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Mr. Price and Dr. Anders. My wife and I are fostering two children. One is eight, the other less than a year old. Neither is baptized. What are we able to do as foster parents to help the souls of these kiddos? What is our duty as Catholics? Thanks for your help, Don. Yeah, thanks, Don. I really appreciate the question. So the Church's position on infant baptism is that any infant can be brought for baptism provided there's a well-grounded expectation that the child can be raised in the Catholic faith. Mm. So um, you know, I don't know what your situation is with respect to fostering, and if you will have the ability to raise these kids in the Catholic faith. That's yeah. really a judgment call on the part of the pastor who has to make that determination. Mm-hmm. If it's a situation where they may be with you for three months and then and then go back home, um, that'd be very different than if you anticipate having them for 10 years. Sure. Well, we do appreciate that. Don, thanks for listening to us in Rochester. Here's one now from Bill in Maine. Why do, why, why, during Mass, do we say the Lord be with you and Christ be with you if they are one and the same? Uh, that's a good question. I've never actually thought about that before. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when I when you read good poetry, good literature, um, redundancy is kind of the, the, the bane of good writing, right? And that's true in prayer as well. Sure. I mean, unless it's, the, it's sort of the creative redundancy of the... <clears throat> Sort of Hebrew parallelisms that you find in the Psalter, mm-hmm. where there's a there's a sort of intentional use of that. Um, actually, one of the ways that the Hebrew Psalter uses parallelisms is it'll take synonymous terms. I mean, this is not Hebrew. I mean, this is, we're talking about Christian yeah. prayer, but the, the the sort of the parallelism of you know the Lord be with you, Christ be with you. I mean, it has a kind of poetic ring to it. it and does. I don't think there's anything more. There's no great secret behind it other than this is a a decision about the style of language. Very good. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Are you ready for a deep dive? Sure. Okay, here we go. This is Chris in Cleveland. Dr. Andrews, can you shed any light on Luke 6-1 regarding sabaton deuteroproton, or literally a second first Sabbath? I see most translations only state that Jesus was gathering grain on a Sabbath, 
but I noticed the original Greek while reading St. Thomas Aquinas's Catena Aurora. Of course, I understand that ultimately the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, but I'm curious if you have any reflections on why Luke included this particular detail. Thanks, Chris in Cleveland. You know, Tom, you're going to have to let me go to a break on this one and come back, because I've got to actually do a little bit of super fast research to, 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 uh, to answer that kind of question. Okay. Well, that's exactly what we'll do then, so we'll take that up after the break. Here's one now from John in Boise. Dr. Anders, on occasion I've heard you intimate, if not explicitly state, that God does not have to punish sin, and if that's true, how can he be a just judge? See Psalm 7, 11, 12. That view doesn't even work in earthly life. If, God forbid, some horrible criminal offense were committed against one of your loved ones, and the judge just forgave them and let them go free— would that be justice? Thanks, John in Boise. Yeah, I appreciate the question very much. So, uh, you know, I, even talk about human relationships, let's go back to your own child, for example, like mm. familial relationships. Do you uh-huh. really conduct your family in such a fashion that you extract an eye for every eye and a tooth for every tooth? Is that really the way you function? No. And, and nor do we function that way even in civil society, right? That That's not how we function. There is such a thing as retributive justice. But any just judge would take into consideration things like the contrition or penitence of the of the offender. I mean, how often have you heard coverage in a in a criminal trial where the prosecuting attorney says, and he's not even sorry? Yeah. The implication being, if he expressed contrition, the judge would take that into consideration in meeting out a sentence. Okay. Appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number 833 288 EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's one now from Desmond. My question, he says, is about grace. My understanding is that Holy Mary, Adam and Eve, and the angels are without original sin and concupiscence. But Adam and Eve and some of the angels sinned against God. How is that possible? Yeah, thanks. So the holy angels at the moment of their creation were created with sanctifying grace, but they weren't confirmed in that grace so that it was possible for them to sin. So their situation was less than the position of the blessed in heaven who have the vision of God. Okay, very now, good. Now, you know, we, we, I don't think we would say of the Blessed Virgin Mary that she enjoyed the beatific vision from her immaculate conception. We would say that of Jesus. The person of Christ had the beatific vision in his human soul uh, for his entire life. Uh, Mary was, however, confirmed in grace to an imminent degree such that she was sinless. She was impeccable throughout her life. Adam and Eve Mm -hmm. were more like the condition of the angels at their creation, where it was possible for them to not sin, but possible for them to sin. Okay. Appreciate that. And one quick one here as we're going to break from Donna. I know that all the angels and saints join us at Mass. My question is, what about the souls in purgatory? Are they present as well? Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, it depends on what you mean by present, right? So if you're thinking in terms of a physical presence, then we shouldn't even ascribe that, predicate that of the angels and the saints, because, of course, being separated spirits, they don't have physical location. They don't have extension in space as one mm-hmm. of their properties. But they're united to us in charity and in, t- and in intent. And I think we could say that as well as the souls uh, of the souls in purgatory. The, the souls in purgatory are in the state of grace— they have the virtue of hope. They know they're going to heaven. They love God and they love neighbor and, and they want what God wants. And so in that respect, they're united with us in will and charity. 
Donna, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we'll go to Aaron in Chiefland, Florida, also Ted in Denver. We've got uh, several lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. It's the Thursday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you have a question for us, uh, or perhaps you'd like to share what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. In any event, the phone number is the same, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, EWTN brings you the Holy Rosary twice each day, and we've been doing it for over 25 years now. You can tune in every morning at 5.30 Eastern for Mother Angelica, every evening at 9.30 Eastern for Father Benedict Groeschel, only on EWTN Radio. All right, let's uh, tackle that question uh, from Chris in Cleveland. Uh, David has had a little bit of time to do a little research. Let me restate this. Restate this. Dr. Andrews, can you shed any light on Luke 6, 1 regarding Sabaton Deuteroproton? or literally a second first Sabbath. I see most translations only state that Jesus was gathering grain on a Sabbath, but I noticed the original Greek while reading St. Thomas Aquinas's Catena Aurora. Of course, I understand ultimately that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, but I'm curious if you have any reflections on why Luke included this particular detail. Yep, so during the break, I looked up the Greek and I looked up the Latin. Because, of course, St. Thomas wasn't reading the Greek. He would have been reading St. Jerome's Vulgate Latin translation of the Bible. And the Greek says uh, it came to pass then on the Sabbath or on a Sabbath. Agonoto de in sabato. Right? So there's not all this other Sabbaths and different Sabbaths. None of that's in the Greek. All right? Uh, In the Latin text, St. Jerome's, uh, we do read, and I'm I'm not going to bother reading the Latin out loud, but here's here's the... the translation of the Latin, okay. it, it happened that on the next Sabbath but one, right? So that's actually different from the Greek text. Oh, yeah. And so that's that's what you're discovering. So I I have no opinion on why Luke said that, because he didn't. There you go. St. Jerome did. Why did St. Jerome do that? Have no idea, except that Jerome was probably working from earlier translations. Mm. And, uh, and you know, th- this is the thing about biblical manuscripts. They exist in all kinds of variety in the ancient world, and Many of those manuscript traditions, we don't have what the underlying original Latin text was mm-hmm. that Jerome was basing it on. We don't know what that history of transmission was. You know, that, that that's kind of lost in the sands of time. Why Jerome rendered it that way, have no idea. But it wouldn't be sensible to derive some great theological significance since it's actually not in the... Uh, in the original autographs is not in the Greek text. Well, there you go. Hey, uh, Chris in Cleveland, thanks so much for listening, and thank you for your question. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Aaron in Chiefland, Florida, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Aaron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I've got a question regarding the wording of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Uh, I understand that it's usually translated as thou shalt not kill, and I'm wondering if thou shalt not murder is a better translation, and what's the linguistic justification for either of the two uh, translations? Because thou shalt not kill kind of implies you shall not kill. We should be uh, pacifists. Um, Uh, But thou shalt not murder is a very kind of different connotation. 
Right. So uh, in, in my translation of the Bible, it's rendered, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. Oh, really? And, and I'm actually looking at, uh, at a concordance right now of the underlying Hebrew, which is translated murder in almost every case that it's used. Mm. Is that helpful for you, Aaron? That is very helpful. So thou shalt not kill came along somewhere later? Well, I mean, I, uh, I, I think it, I mean, the commandment is against murder. It's not against killing. Okay. Right. Very and good. Catholic tradition has always distinguished between the two in its moral theology. So you, to murder someone is to kill someone without cause. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, or without a just cause, and but but there are instances in which killing is morally licit. For example, defensive warfare. Mm-hmm. Okay, Aaron. Thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go to Ted in Denver watching EWTN television today. Uh, Ted, what's on your mind? Yes, sir. Uh, my question is, why do Protestants believe Jesus had brothers and sisters? And it reads in the Bible that, you know, he had brothers and sisters waiting for him or outside or something. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, um, you know, the text of Scripture is ambiguous on this question. Well, the the text of Scripture nowhere says that Mary had other children apart from Jesus. I'll put it that way. Um, the text of Scripture does mention siblings of our Lord, though if you just trace the names out through the biblical narrative, you can discern that these are cousins of his. They're often identified as the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mm. Uh, But it never explicitly says. We don't find a text of Scripture that says Mary never had any other kids, Um, and we certainly don't find any text that says that she did, right? And so the implication that she did is a false inference based on these other siblings that mm-hmm. we know about. Okay. Um, now, early Protestants uh, affirmed the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but they did so not based on the scriptural data, which is ambiguous, but on the universal tradition of the ancient church. So uh, a person like Francis Turretin, who was a 17th century reformed scholastic theologian from Geneva, no friend of Catholics, couldn't bring himself to deny the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity because he recognized that this was the unambiguous uh, uniform doctrine of ancient Christianity, and he just couldn't throw out that much Christian history. Uh, as to why modern Protestants often assert without evidence that, that Mary had other children, I think there are two reasons for that. One is I think they're careless in their biblical exegesis, and when they read that Jesus had brothers and sisters, they just assume that must have been Mary's children. And secondly, quite honestly, is I think they're kind of giddy at the thought of being to, able to undermine a Catholic dogma. Mm. Like, I, I know Protestants who have that disposition. Like, I mean, I've heard sermons on the fact, right, uh. that, that uh, hey, those Catholics are really out to lunch. They think Mary didn't have any other children, yada, yada, yada. And they, they, they love to assert things that, uh, that undermine uh, the Catholic doctrine of Mary. And, I mean, I've been in Protestant churches before where when someone raises a question about biblical interpretation, the sort of a range of options of the way to understand something— if one of those options tilts too Catholic, uh, there'll be a consensus in the room that says, well, we can't go there because that would lead us to Catholicism, and that'd be just a terrible thing. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Ted, thanks so much uh, for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Brian now. Brian is in uh, Guthrie Center, Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, uh, hi there. I had a friend of mine ask me, uh, if a Catholic man who is already married could become a priest, or if 
only become a deacon? Yep, thank you. Appreciate the question. Depends on a lot of circumstances. So a Catholic man who belongs to one of the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church uh, can potentially be ordained to the sacred priesthood. Um, a Catholic man who belongs to the Latin rite of the Church cannot be ordained to the sacred priesthood. Okay. Uh, a, a uh, Interestingly, a convert to the Catholic Church, uh, if they come from the Anglican tradition, they were clergy in the Anglican tradition, uh, and they enter into full communion with the Catholic Church, some of those men who are already married can be ordained to the clerical state. And, and we've got married Catholic clergy uh, in the Latin Rite today, but most of them, well, all of them really are converts, mostly from Episcopalianism, although there are a few other exceptions where uh, that, that's allowed. They kind of let a few folks in. But if you're, if, you gr- if you're baptized Catholic, you grow up Catholic in the Latin Rite, uh, and you get married, you can't become a priest in the Eastern rites of the Church, you you can in many of those jurisdictions. Is that helpful for you, Brian? Yes, sir. Thank you much. Thank All right. You. Appreciate your call. A couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Aura is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Hi, Dr. Anders. Which is the earliest historical reference of the body and soul of the Virgin Mary going to heaven? Uh, there is a, uh, a an apocryphal text from the third or late second century about the dormition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh. right? And so we have we have some textual evidence from that early period. Uh, we have a liturgical celebration later in late, in late antiquity, and by the time you get to the Council of Chalcedon, which is in 451, it's a pretty widely accepted doctrine. Uh, and celebrated uh, liturgically in the church. But there's, there are hints of it uh, earlier in the tradition. And if they're there, they may in fact represent uh, earlier unwritten oral traditions. Aura, thanks for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Carla, uh, called to communion here on EWTN. Carlos is in Dallas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio AM 910. Hey, Carlos, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello there. Thank you. Appreciate uh, you taking my call. My question is regarding the Ark of the Covenant, and I understand uh, our Blessed Mothers are Ark of the Covenant, Jesus being the new Adam, and uh, the Virgin Mary, the new Eve. My question is, is the Ark of the Covenant symbolism, or did it really exist, and your thoughts on where it is? Um, Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So uh, I did detect a false dichotomy there. Is the Ark of the Covenant symbolism, or did it really exist? And, of course, every Old Testament narrative is symbolism, and very often also historical fact. So those two things can coincide. You can be a, you can be an historical fact and also be a symbol of something yet to come. Mm. Uh, and in this case, the question of the Ark of the Covenant, I think undoubtedly there was an Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it was, it was held in the temple in Jerusalem, and, I mean, that's extremely well attested uh, historically and archaeologically. As terms of where is the Ark of the Covenant today, I don't think that it exists. I don't think that it's an intact today. I think it's um, in that warehouse at the end of Indiana could be Jones. At the warehouse at yeah. the end of Indiana Jones. Big yeah, warehouse. exactly. No, uh, during the Babylonian exile, uh, the Babylonians came and sacked Jerusalem, and they carried away all the treasures of the temple. And I, I think the Ark was lost to, in the sands of time and history at that at that moment. Um, and uh, you know, there, are, there the field of biblical archaeology is immense. 
um, very technical, uh, very professional, and so people who are interested in the artifacts of ancient Israel, I mean, start acquainting yourself with the academic field of biblical archaeology, and stay away from conspiracy theories and apocalypticists and and uh, you know, well, yeah. and anything and Indiana Jones in any way other than you know pure escapist fiction. Great movie. Appreciate your call there, Carlos. <laughs> call to communion here on EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, we do have some lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Tom is in Allentown, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, I don't know that I really have a question. I'm hoping that you can explain something. Uh, some of my friends think the New Testament Bible is just a, a bunch of stories, or fairy tales, that Jesus was a nice preacher and, and preached some fairy tales. And today I saw the gospel where uh, Peter asked Jesus, how often do you forgive somebody? And Jesus told a story about a king and a fellow owed him money, and the king forgave the debtor. But then the debtor, uh, people owed him money, and he was pretty vicious to the uh, to the people that owed him money. But I guess my question is, like, did Jesus know some of these stories? Did he actually know these people? Or is virtually most of what he said just stories or parables to prove a point? Yeah, right? thank you. I really appreciate the question. So uh, there's another alternative, right? Uh, there's a misconception, I think, of Christ's parables, that the purpose of the parables was to convey a, a moral maxim like Aesop's fables. And that's actually not true, and it's not what Christ says about his own parables. In Matthew chapter 13, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And I'm going to paraphrase his answer, but Christ's answer was, because I don't want to be clearly understood. I want my teaching to be obscure, evocative, elusive, mysterious, strange, and perplexing. All right, go read the text, Matthew chapter 13. That's, that's what he says. But to you, the disciples, I explain all things clearly. Well, how do you make sense of that? Well, I think it's helpful if you go back and actually look at the genre, the literary genre of parable as we find it in the Hebrew tradition. So look, for example, by comparison with it's 2 Samuel chapter 12. You'll see the story of Nathan as he goes to rebuke King David for murdering Uriah the Hittite and taking his wife Bathsheba in an adulterous union. And the way that Nathan rebukes David, he doesn't walk into the throne room and say, David, you're a bum, you know, get out of here. He, he doesn't do that. What he does is he goes and he tells David a story about a rich man with, with many flocks and herds and a poor man with one ewe lamb that he loved. And in the story, um, the rich man has a friend come visit him, and instead of taking one of, his many own, one, of, one of his own many lambs, he sends for the poor man's lamb and slaughters it and serves it to his friend, and so the poor man is left bereft. And when David hears the story, he says, this is awful, this is terrible, uh, this guy deserves to die. And it's only then that Nathan pulls back the veil and says, you are that man. You're the rich man that took the one ewe lamb of the poor man. And at that point, David is cut to the heart and realizes yeah. that this is a parable against him. Mm -hmm. The point of the parable was to obscure the moral and, and generate, elicit within David a kind of sympathy for the victim mm -hmm. uh, that would deceive him. Like, because he's, it's, it's, for modest stories, it's hard to admit fault. It's hard to see ourselves in the proper light to really come to repentance and the genuine examination of, conference, uh, of, of conscience. So if, if I can be brought to a position where I'm more... A docile to the truth about myself, 
Yeah. Right. And then have the veil pulled away. That's what the parable does. So I think that's what Christ is up to with his parables. I think the purpose of the parables is not to be clear, but to be elusive in just this way, to to generate a kind of sympathy, a perspective, mm-hmm. a narrative perspective within the story where the listener is forced to identify with the perpetrator of a crime and see themselves in a new light. I mean, the, 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 the Good Samaritan is an ideal example of this. It's quite obvious that the people involved who are the bad guys are those who in Jesus' own day would have considered themselves the good guys, and Christ upturns their expectations and using this genre of parable is able to bring repentance. Tom, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, Gina in San Antonio, Robin in Buckley, Illinois, Andre in Trinidad, and one line open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Uh, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Prince of Peace Radio. That is in Palm City and Stewart, Florida, celebrating their 16th year with EWTN. Congratulations to Hans Krug and his great team there at WJPP from all of us here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Gina in San Antonio listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Gina, what's on your mind today? Hey, thank you for y'all's discussion, and I always admire and learn so much from Call to Communion. And I was listening to the caller that asked about married men being becoming priests in the Latin Rite. I, I agree with what Dr. Anders had said, but there's something that, uh, maybe a clarification. While a man is married, he cannot become a priest. But I know personally a priest that was married when he was a deacon, and then his wife died, and, she, and then later he became a priest. And I have a friend in seminary that is similar to that. So maybe just a little caveat um, might help others. I realize while they're married, they can't. Just kind of your comment. Sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, you're, you're absolutely right that a formerly married man right. can become a priest. A married man, by definition, is someone who has a living wife. Yeah. So it could be a widower. It could not be a divorced man, right? Um, well, actually, yes. Really? Under certain circumstances. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There, I mean, I know, uh, I actually know a priest in that condition who got ordained after a divorce. No kidding. Yeah, but, All um, right. but normally, uh, that's not the, the, the pattern. But, uh, but the rule is if you have a wife, you can't, um, you can't be ordained to the priesthood in the Latin rite. Appreciate your call, Gina. Thank you so much for it, and glad you're listening there in San Antonio. Let's go to uh, Trinidad now and talk with Andre, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hello, Andre. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Tom and Dr. Anders. Uh, I just wanted to say a big thank you to uh, Dr. Anders some time ago. I told I was sharing all the new things I learned on your show with my fellow parishioners, and thus far I've done about 14 articles, under 600 words each from the Sabbath to Mary's perpetual virginity to Jesus' miraculous conception and birth and to the church's teaching on receiving communion on the hand, the imprecatory psalms. And as far as I can tell, they've been very well received. So on behalf of our parish at St. Anthony's, I just want to say a very hearty thank you. Well, I deeply appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, you know, one of these days I really hope to make it to Trinidad. I'd love to come visit the parish, but it's not in the... Not in the plans in the short term, but I would love to make that trip one day. You're a good man, Andre. 
Thank you so much for your call. Here is Robin now in Buckley, Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Robin. What's on your mind today? Hi. How are you today? Great. What's what, what's new with you? I have a, a friend of mine gave me a book, and she said, before you read it, she said it, it tells you in there that the Blessed Virgin Mary is uh, buried in Jerusalem. She said, I always thought she was buried in, I think she said Capernaum. And I always thought she was assumed into heaven. So straighten me out, will you? All right. Appreciate the question. So she ain't buried anywhere. <laughs> I, I can guarantee you that. All right. Um, now, there are diverse traditions in the church about where she was assumed into heaven. And so there's a tradition that says she was assumed from Jerusalem. There's a tradition that says she was assumed from Ephesus. Um, in uh, in the Latin church, the pattern is to typically represent her assumption as taking place while she's alive. In the Eastern church, the pattern is to represent her assumption taking place after she died. Uh, but she's assumed body and soul into heaven, which is why uh, at, um, at the uh, Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Roman emperor at the time, uh, who was a big fan of Christian relics, wanted to get himself a relic of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and St. Juvenal at the council said, uh, sorry, uh, your emperorness, no relics around because they all went to heaven with her. Emperorness. Your emperorness. I like that. Robin, thanks so much for your call. Here's an email now from Jane. Dear Dr. Andrews, my question is about prayer. I believe in the power of prayer, but I struggle with understanding the difference between praying for strength and the courage to endure hard times, which makes complete sense to me, and also praying for issues like healing, which I always wonder about because of submitting to God's will. If we are to surrender ourselves to God's will, why would we pray for healings and other things like that when we believe God will do what is His will in the end? Also, how do prayer chains work? They seem to suggest that more prayer would move God in some way. For example, if uh, John is suffering with cancer and has a hundred people praying for him, but Tim is also suffering from cancer but only has five people praying for him, is God therefore persuaded to heal John because he's got a hundred? Okay, yeah, thanks. A lot of good questions here about prayer. First of all, is there a difference between praying for strength and praying for courage to endure a hardship? I'm not sure I see a distinction between those two things. Okay. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, right. courage is a is a virtue of the will to to endure what's difficult. Um, uh, strength that as the way you describe it, but we're not talking about being able to deadlift 500 pounds here. I think we're talking about a kind of moral fortitude, and yeah. I, I don't know that that's distinguishable. I mean, maybe you could nitpick about it, but I don't see there's a big difference. And when it comes to how can you reconcile prayer for healing? with the understanding that I need to be reconciled to the will of God no matter what. Well, I think our Lord gives us the example of that in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. So it's legitimate to pray for changes in your material circumstances, provided you're okay with whatever God sends your way. A pastor of mine, now retired, used to say all the time, um, God has three answers to prayer. Yes, not yet, and I have a better plan. And I think that's a great little maxim, right, yes. the way of thinking about the, the divine will. In terms of the functioning of prayer chains, uh, you know, prayer chains are not particularly a Catholic tradition. Um, I mean, getting lots of people to pray for stuff is, you know, but, but you know, to have a kind of, um, uh, you know, chain letter approach to, to, to prayer where you, you have a list and you pray and then you dial the phone and call the next person on the list, I mean, that, there's nothing magical about that. And as to your question, 
does a the sheer multiplication, you know, quantitative multiplication of of prayers affect the outcome? I, I think we can say no, right? I mean, the, the there is a criteria in Scripture for effective prayer, and it's the prayer of the righteous, mm. right? Not yes. not the quantity of prayer, but the prayer of the righteous. And right. you know, the parable of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, I think, is instructive because the the message that I one of the messages that I get out of that is that the prophets of Baal thought that by multiplying frenetic activity that they could move the hand of the gods, right? And I've definitely witnessed that in the Christian tradition. I've seen people who who behave that way. If we can shout louder, yell louder, get more people involved, dance, scream, sing, pass out, you know, foam at the mouth, then surely God will hear our prayer. And I in my younger days I was sometimes guilty of that kind of uh, of that kind of frenzy and it, it typically leads to fever of the brain, not to, <laughs> not to the curing of cancer. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't conceptualize it that way. And look from a, from an empirical point of view, I've read an awful lot of scientific studies that have attempted to measure the efficacy of prayer. I think the I think the attempt is quixotic. I, I think that it's misconceived because prayer is not magic, neither is it science. It's relational. Uh, but the results of those kinds of experiences are are not impressive, right? They're not impressive. They mm-hmm. don't—I mean, if you just get a bunch of random people mouthing words uh, for somebody's healing, it doesn't seem to show any clinically observable outcome. And, and But I don't think we should expect it to as Christians. That's right. not the way prayer functions. Sure. Jane, a couple of great questions. Thanks so much for your email. By the way, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Lisa, listening in Dallas on the great Guadalupe Radio. Lisa, what's on your mind today? Yes, good afternoon. I have a very interesting question I hope Dr. Anders can clear up for me and my family and friends, and that is that... um, I would be, we would all like to know if Mary of Bethany is also the same Mary Magdalene. Um, yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So in Catholic tradition, Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magdalene are traditionally treated as two different people. Uh, in fairness, there are just piles and piles of Marys running around the New Testament. Oh, yeah. And without, you know, without a, a lot of explanation as to who they are and what their relationship is. And so it's it's kind of hard to know. It's kind of hard to get behind the text and really ferret out the historical realities there because the texts are not entirely clear. Uh, but tradition does regard them as separate people. It's like a peach tree street in uh, Atlanta. How many of those are there? I think there's a bunch of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and here in Alabama, Montevallo. I think we've got like five different Montevallo streets. Well, I think every city in America has a Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. Uh, Yes, indeed. Appreciate your call, Lisa. Call to communion here on EWTN. And uh, let's go to a K now in O'Fallon, Illinois, listening on Sirius XM, channel 130. K, what's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Um, I have a question regarding the Mass, the Our Father in the Mass. Mm-hmm. And it seems like I remember years ago we did not say at the end of the Our Father, uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, um, et cetera. Is that put in there just to appease Protestants? It's what it seems like to me. Um, or is there another reason? Right. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So in biblical manuscripts, the Lord's Prayer appears with in two different versions— um, and there's a longer ending that includes, you know, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, and there's a shorter version that does not have that. And 
uh, the biblical scholars are generally of the opinion that the longer ending is an addition, that it wasn't in the original text of the gospel. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so the Protestant practice is based on that other, that, that different uh, biblical manuscript tradition. Um, and uh, as to why we include it in the, in the current Catholic liturgy, it's not, it's not the typical usage in devotional prayer, as you know. We pray the rosary or something. We, we usually don't use that longer ending of the Lord's Prayer. Um, you know, I wasn't present when they compiled uh, the new rite of the Mass, so I, I, I can't give you the rationale for every editorial decision that was made. Uh, is it possible that uh, that the compilers and editors of the new Mass wrote that in there out of a kind of ecumenical sensitivity? Yeah, sure, that's possible. Um, I, I wouldn't say that derisively as, huh, they only did this to appease Protestants, you know. <laughs> I mean, as someone who was a convert to the Church from Protestantism, uh, the overtures that the Church made from the Second Vatican Council to make the faith more intelligible to to the larger family of Christians was a bridge for me to enter into the Catholic faith. And so I, I wouldn't, you know, trying to find common cause with Protestants does not dilute Catholicism. No. Right? And we shouldn't necessarily deride that if that was the motive. Okay. Appreciate your call from O'Fallon, Illinois. Glad that you're listening to Call to Communion this afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, you need to make your plans for a very full weekend Next weekend at this year's EWTN Free Family Celebration, it starts a week from tomorrow, Friday, August 25th, right here in Birmingham. You can visit the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville. It's about an hour away from us on uh, I-65. Attend Holy Mass tour the shrine, and so much more. And then it's off to the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex on Saturday, August 26th for all of the wonderful family celebration events. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out more and to register. And remember, it is all absolutely free. EWTN dot com slash family celebration. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders in progress here on EWTN. Matt in Tulsa emailed us, Dr. Anders, I hear you regularly extol the virtues of Catholicism and how much you have personally benefited from having converted to it. However, I know many former Catholics who have converted to different non-Catholic faith traditions, and they say they're glad they also made the switch. The main argument is that Catholicism, to them, was just a big list of do's and don'ts and a bunch of memorized rituals. What are your thoughts on why so many Catholics have left the Church? Yeah, well, I agree with every single thing you just said without complaint. Like, I would add nothing to that. I completely, utterly, and totally agree with everything that you just said. Uh, And I think your characterization of ex-Catholics who become, say, Protestants or other religious traditions— uh, because that's their perception of Catholicism. I think that's dead-on accurate, right? I think it's dead-on accurate. And I've, I've read a lot of sociology on why people leave the Catholic Church, and I have a lot of personal experience and a lot of anecdotal knowledge of individuals who have left the Church, and that's a very common complaint, right, that, that people did not experience Catholicism as in any way transformative, uh, but found it to be basically unhelpful to their spiritual development. Wow. And—, and the way I think about that as a Catholic is that I think, first of all, I do think that there are objective problems in Catholic apostolate. I think there are some serious impediments in the way that we habitually do ministry, and they're the kind of complaints that I find 
uh, articulated very well in Pope Francis's critique of our current status quo. So if you've ever go read, ever read Evangelii Gaudium, which is the Pope's uh, uh, apostolic exhortation on evangelism, he speaks about his dream for a missionary option where the church's traditional ways of doing things, times and places and organizational structures could be refashioned in the interests of evangelism and, and personal encounter with Jesus. And he points out a lot of things, right? And one of them is a kind of overly bureaucratic structure um, and approach within Catholic ministry. And I've, I've seen that many, many times in my life. And I've seen people alienated because of that, uh, you know, ministry bottlenecks, uh, some moat dragon that holds the, the, the keys to the kingdom and the church, and others aren't allowed to get, along, get involved and participate. Uh, you know, I, my own work in Catholic ministry outside the diocese, uh, that's a big concern of mine. How can we uh, improve the, the delivery of Catholic ministries to reach more people and help them uh, really enter into the depths of the Catholic life, which is which is not about just mechanically uh, performing rituals, but really of uh, embracing the message of Christ's death and resurrection, which is presented to us under the form of these rituals. I mean, the sacraments of the Church are not bare signs. They're, they're powerful tools for transformative experience uh, if they're properly understood and appropriated. But that's you know that's the that's the perennial work of catechesis is to explain to people how to make the church's ritual, how to make the church's teaching come alive in a practical way in their life. And our failure to do that, which I think is manifest, is evidenced in the large number of ex-Catholics who go elsewhere. We have a lot to learn, don't we? Uh, you know, learn every day. Absolutely, Matt in Tulsa. We do appreciate your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A rather long email here from Vincent, who says uh, Matthew five. Verses 17 through 19 makes it abundantly clear that Yeshua did not abolish the law and the prophets. Indeed, it says, quote, not, not one yod or tittle shall by any means, including false interpretation, etc., pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Indeed, heaven and earth pass before the law passes. The writings of John the Apostle were penned in the 80s to 96, as long after Yeshua ascended to heaven, long after Paul, and long after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Yet, the Holy Spirit, speaking through John, said in 1 John 5.3, keep the law, it is not burdensome. So, why then does the Catholic Church ignore the commandment and not keep the mit, uh, mitzvah of the Torah and biblical feast days? What say ye? Yeah, because Christ tells us not to, and the Gospels and, and the, particularly St. Paul's epistles uh, say explicitly that any man who thinks that he need to circumcise himself in order to come to Christ has cut himself off from the promise of the Gospel. I mean, you, the book of Galatians could not be more emphatic. I mean, this was the biggest theological controversy in early Christianity, namely how, how are Gentiles to be reconciled to God through Christ? Do they have to follow the law of Moses? And the Council of Jerusalem, which you read about in Acts 15, said emphatically that they do not have to follow the law of Moses, that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, but the fullness is found through faith in him and the gift of the Spirit. Uh, the law was written on tablets of stone. The new law is written on human hearts. Uh, St. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He talks about, look, it's not circumcision done in the flesh by the hands of men. It's the circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit, whereby a man can keep the righteous requirements of the law and thereby be saved. So, I mean, this is just is the gospel. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, I mean, that's the position. Yeah. Vincent, thanks so much uh, for your email. Appreciate that. Christine, listening to us in Chicago on EWTN television today. Christine, what's on your mind? 
Uh, I would like to say, you asked the question why so many Catholics left the church. First of all, you're not the only ones who are going to get to heaven. There will be many, even Protestants up there and people that we never even... And then secondly, the, uh, it has to be done through scriptures that, uh, the, these made up rules, for example, there were, there were a lot of, there were Catholic, there were priests who were married in, in 1054 AD. There, it was changed by, by the Pope of that day. That's not scriptural. And, and thirdly, you got all these college professors that are saying, that would say, like, tongues aren't for today. This is, when it's in Acts 239, where it's right there, it's for all of us. All right, let me respond to some of that if I could. Yeah, I really appreciate the question, Christine. Thank you so much. Uh, so, first of all, your first objection to Catholicism is based on a misunderstanding. Catholics don't think that Catholics are the only people in heaven. Catholics recognize that God can extend his grace to anybody in any way. In fact, it's a dogma of our faith that God gives sufficient grace to every soul to be saved. So we do expect to see people in heaven who were not Catholic in this life. Um, uh, when it comes to, uh, you said it has to be based on the scriptures. I take it that you mean that the Christian faith should be regulated by the Bible alone. I think that's what you mean. Um, that position, however, is not itself taught in the Bible. The sa sacred scripture actually contradicts that. It, it directs us to the teaching of the church, not to the Bible alone as our rule of faith. When Jesus made provision for handing on the church, handing on the faith, he said to the eleven, go on to all nations and make disciples and teach everything I've commanded you. I'll be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whoever sends you forgive are forgiven. So the teaching of Christ, of course, was oral tradition. He didn't write anything down. This was a command to hand on an oral teaching by, by authorized individuals with a promise of divine assistance. That, that's the Catholic understanding of how you hand on the faith, not the Bible alone. Um, uh, the Catholic Church absolutely has made up rules. Any civilization has to have made up rules yeah. in order to function. Right? I mean, why do I drive on the right side of the road rather than the left? It's an arbitrary rule. I mean, I could drive on the left rather than the right, and they, they do in the UK, right? It's, but you have to have principles to govern the internal life of, of a society, otherwise chaos erupts. Every Protestant church I've ever known has a way, a custom, a way of doing things. Sure. You know, why, why pass the offering plate from the center aisle? You got to pass it from somewhere, <laughs> you know, and it's, 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 it's trivial. Uh, absolutely, there were married priests in 1054. Actually, there's still married priests in the Catholic Church. Um, and uh, the, the, the disciplines of the Catholic Church regarding the life of the clergy are not uh, dogma. And, and the, we've never represented that they were, right? So I, I agree with you there. Um, uh, you have college professors teaching this, that, and the other thing. Well, you know, Lord, save us from college professors, right? <laughs> I used to be a college professor. Um, and uh, college professors of whatever stripe are not the authority in the Catholic Church, right? I mean, they, they have a kind of a limited authority over their own domain, over their own area of expertise, but they mm. don't make the rules in the Catholic Church, and they don't define the dogmas, they don't write the theology. Uh, well, they write it, but it's not necessarily accepted by the Church, right? Sure, sure. Um, and as far as uh, the use of uh, speaking in tongues, actually, the Catholic Church uh, absolutely approves of the charismatic phenomena as, as an allowable spirituality within Catholicism. It's not normative. You don't have to do it, but there are definitely Catholics that participate in the charismatic movement and speak in tongues and 
do all kinds of things of that sort. So a lot of objections to Catholicism that I think a person could reasonably make, I think many of these are based on a misunderstanding of what the Church actually teaches. Thank you so much for your call, Christine, from Chicago. Let's go to a Dean in Boston listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Dean, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good afternoon, fellas, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I think you guys do a great job, and I've really learned a lot. Thank you. Uh, Creative Catholic, and uh, you guys really connect the dots on uh, the intellectual side. Can't be more pleased with your show. Um, I'm calling because uh, I remember hearing uh, Dr. Ender speak about um, about um, the Trinity and an explanation uh, from Thomas Aquinas in talking about intellect uh, and then the act of, of thinking and, and then, um, you know, thinking of yourself, if you will. So uh, I came up with a, another one. I, I don't want to dump it down too much, but uh, my analogy of, of the triune God is time. Uh, you know, our past, the present, the future, and um, all three of them are 100% time. And I don't know if, I know God's out of time, so it's not really yeah, thanks. I, I think I can respond to that. I really appreciate it. And, and you know, you, you join the ranks of the many who have tried to think up good analogies for the Trinity. Um, I hate to burst your bubble. I, I don't think this one works. And the reason why is because time is divisible, right? And, ah. and time definitely has parts. And so as an analogy for the essence of the Godhead, God's without parts, right? Um, and uh, so I don't know that it really captures the nature of the distinction. What we say about the, the distinction of persons is that they don't differ in essence or nature at all. They differ in relation only, right? Um, so I don't, I, I don't, th- I don't think, this, I don't think it works as an analogy. Dean, we do appreciate your uh, call though today. Thanks for checking in from Boston. We have just a couple seconds here, Doctor Danders. Uh, perhaps you could tell people about the Call to Communion website. Oh yeah, check out the Call to Communion website, calltocommunion.com, and uh, it precedes this show by quite a few years. Uh, I'm one of many contributors. And it was uh, invented. It was uh, it was created by a group of formerly Presbyterian and Reformed Protestants, who have all become Catholics. Uh, many of the writers and contributors were seminary professors, pastors, uh, uh, seminary students, uh, theologians of one kind or another, and we share our reasons for becoming Catholic and dialogue, particularly with Reformed Protestants, but Protestants of all stripes. And I think it's a pretty good-natured site. Not a lot of uh, uh, hateful polemics. It's just, let's have an open, honest dialogue about where we came from, where we're going. No foaming at the um, mouth. No foaming at the mouth. Uh, we have a no foaming rule, actually. Oh, good, good. So check it out, calltocommunion.com. There you go. We do appreciate that. We appreciate you. Dr. David Anders, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, 11 p.m. for the Encore. That's 8 o'clock on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime at EWTN.com slash radio. Until tomorrow, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a great day. See you tomorrow. God bless.